Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a grab bag today. I just want to just talk about just a lot of uh, separate ideas. So um, I just tell you that up front because uh, sometimes I do that without, uh, without um, uh, warning you. <laughs> so people sort of like, what's the connection between this and that? And it's like, well, no, 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 no there was no connection. Um, so so just, this is just going to kind of be a, a buffet of, of ideas today. And, and um, um, so, so I just, you know, I just, let me just start with something that, uh, that I was moved by. Um, I'm, I'm coming up, uh, I, I have a, uh, a college reunion. Um, it's uh, the 30th year. Um, from uh, from Harvard class of 1984, and and they put out a a book of um, I, I guess it's a report they call it 30th anniversary report, and people can can write in kind of things that what they've been doing with their with their life and stuff like that if they want to. Um, I actually didn't write anything, and and I, I see that a good number of my friends also didn't write anything. But but there are a lot of people who did write stuff, and it's it's fascinating to me. To uh, this is it 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 goes for um, almost 500 pages, and uh, I don't know most of these people, and they're talking about their lives, and and it's just really just interesting to see how people reflect on their lives 30 years later, um, and. One that I just read, like a lot of them are, are, are pretty dry. Some of them are, are surprising. Um, uh, this one that I just read, she was a woman who was just talking about how great it is that she stopped drinking. So it's like really some of them are, are pretty, you know, pretty uh, sherry, you know, like uh, people are making themselves vulnerable and being open about certain things. But this one, I want to read to you just because it like really... It just really moved me on a lot of levels. And I'm not going to mention his name just because, you know, maybe he just wants to make this information available to this particular community and not in general. So I'll leave out his name. But um, he's in the financial world and he lives in the Midwest. But I don't, I, as far as I know, I didn't know. So, um, so here, here's what he writes. He writes, Harvard moment number 817. Good opening, right? <laughs> you know, so, uh, colon. It was just six floors, but the conversation covered three decades. Peter had been my freshman advisor. As the, elevator's door, as the elevator doors closed on us, he bellowed in his big uh, Plymouth voice, how's that magnificent house of yours? Okay, so let me just set the scene because I had to read this twice to follow the uh, characters. So the person who's writing is the graduate. He walked into a, um, an elevator and he sees someone who was his, um, his freshman uh, advisor, who had been the dorm sort of advisor, okay? So he just walks into an elevator and this whole little segment is going to take place over six floors in an elevator, meaning to say really a few seconds, okay? So the elevator's doors closed on us. He bellowed in his big voice, how's that magnificent house of yours? He had been our guest of honor on a trip, and I showed him and my wife in the Midwest, and I showed him and my wife that I knew a thing or two about tea, a big afternoon affair like we'd all experienced in our junior common rooms, and Peter had perfected at Sparks House. So, you know, they would throw in college-like teas, you know, like these social events. 
So he apparently, this freshman advisor had been like a great entertainer and had, you know, hosted this big sort of like, kind of like fancy, you know, very civilized kind of affair. So he wants to show that he can do the same thing. So he invites him to his house with his wife and, and throws a big affair. And he writes, it was a huge success. But seven years later, as the elevator ascended, I confessed to this, he's now, this, this man who is advisor is now a professor of Christian morals, that my marriage had crashed, the house sold, the community center shattered. Wow. Wow. Oh my, he sighed, looking up at me with the wisdom of so many battles waged so gracefully. His eyes told me, quote, the world is complicated, I know. Then he spoke, quote, you will always have my friendship. There was only time for two knowing breaths before the elevator arrived. Doors opened. A welcoming committee whisked him away to address the Alumni Association, the last I would see of him. I lingered in amazement at how a man of so many words had made it clear with so few that everything was going to be okay. And it has been. Wow, wow. You know, can you imagine, like, like that was, that was an elevator conversation that went from, like, from the ground floor to the sixth floor, and the person got so much assurance, and he said to him, you know, you're, you're always going to have my friendship, you know? And, uh, wow, you can say a lot with a little. And... I'll tell you something, you know, it, it reminds me a completely different level, but just a, a, small, a small thing. I remember, I, I don't know if my mom had just passed away, or I think she had, uh, or whether she was in her last days, I, I don't know, I think she had just passed away. Um, and someone came up to me uh, in shul, I was in New York, so this wasn't my shul, and it was someone who I don't think I knew very well, but I, I knew him well enough, and he knew that I guess my mom had just passed away. I think that's when it happened. And, you know, what, what can you say? What can really one person who's an acquaintance, essentially, say to another person at this time in the other person's life? You know what I mean? It, and But he looked at me, and he sort of like raised up his hands like, what can you do? He didn't say anything. But just, he just, in a very sympathetic moment, he just sort of like, with his body language, just expressed, it's tough. And I sort of like, sort of mirrored his kind of, his body language and said, yeah, you know, it is. And then he nodded and he walked on. And he didn't say a single word, but of everyone who, you know, said comforting words to me after my mom passed, I think that's the only thing I remember. You know, someone who I basically hardly knew who actually didn't say anything. And it's now about 16 years later. And that's, that's the one that, that stands out in my head, you know? Um, so, okay, that's, now we're going to move down the buffet table. <laughs> okay, we'll try it. Hopefully it won't be uh, too noisy. Yeah. Actually, you know something? I think that you can, I think you can turn on the air conditioner. Um, Although that's not making too much noise. If that's refreshing, then maybe we'll stay with that. <laughs> uh, it would be nice to 
turn that on. Yeah, we'll try it. Okay, now I want to just uh, transition for a moment and um, and uh, read you something from uh, the Sefer Hasidim. This is uh, an amazing book. It's been sitting on my shelf for, I think, approximately 20 years without me opening it. And, and, uh, and I just thought to myself, wow, you know, I, I wonder why I haven't like, visited this book. So, so I, I'm just beginning to look into it. And I'm like, really like a, a couple of pages into it is, is the truth. But it's divided up into small sections. It's, um, it's one of the classic books in Jewish thought. Um, even though it's called Sefer Hasidim, um, you, you would, so you would imagine it was written around the time of the Hasidic masters. So it was actually written in 1150 by a Rishon uh, named Yehuda HaChasid, who is one of the fundamental, one of the critical figures in, Jew, in Jewish history. And a lot of the minhagim that we have, a lot of the customs that we have, especially some of the more mystical customs that we have, actually date back directly to Yehuda HaChasid. So again, so he's writing about um, 800 years ago. And, um, and, and he was a great mystic. And, and there, there are really very interesting things here, um, amazing things here. And I just want to read you a couple of them. Um, this one really moved me. It's, it's dealing with a financial case where a person... Um, it's called, the, the little title that they give to this segment, it's on uh, page 154 in this, um, it's called They Both Forgot. It's where one person borrowed money from another person, and the other person doesn't remember if he paid him back. And the person who borrowed the money doesn't remember if he paid him. So you've got a loan that took place, and neither party remembers whether the other party paid back the loan or not. So now listen to this, because I think that this is super beautiful. A man borrowed money from his friend, and neither can remember if the debt was repaid, and they don't want to go to court about the matter. If the borrower wants to clear his conscience before heaven, he should pay the debt. All right? So in other words, you don't know. Did I pay it? Did I not pay it? You know what? He's telling you, you know what? Be on the, be on the strong side, be on the careful side, and, and, and pay it again anyway. Worst comes, to, worst comes to worst, you already paid it, pay it again, okay? If the lender is also a good and upright person, he will not accept the payment, right? Because he's thinking, you know what, maybe I already got the money from him, and then if I take it again, maybe that's not right. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Then he says, okay, so that's the situation. If that's the case, then the borrower should place the entire debt into the lender's hand. In other words, even though you're cleared and you don't have to do it anymore, at this point, do it, but do it for real. Don't say, oh, I want it, you know, like, have you ever seen two people fake fight over a check? <laughs> it's, really, it's, it's really one of the more, like, absurd things where, like, actually, both are saying they want to pay, and it's so clear that neither wants to pay. <laughs> So, by the way, um, I'll tell you something that I saw uh, that people have done. I don't think, I think this is still not widely practiced. Why? So, so this is still something that's cool. I don't, you know, maybe you've seen it done, but I don't think everyone knows about this trick yet. If you know you're going to get into a situation where there's going to be a fight over the check, 
and you actually want to pay. <laughs> All right, you actually want to pay. One thing that I, I, I've seen done, and I, I've even done it, it's, it's a nice thing, is, is that during the meal, you just get up, and they, people will think you're making a call, going to the bathroom, whatever it is. You get up, and you hand your credit card to the waiter. And then at the end of the meal, the waiter will come, and it will, the issue will already be resolved. And the couple of times I've seen this happen, the other party is always shocked. Because the other party is ready to grab the check, and they're like, what, really? You know, and then you've actually done it, you know, instead of this sort of fake fight that happens. So, um, so anyway, so, so the person should actually put the money in the person's hand and say, if I owe you this money, let it be yours, and if I don't owe it, I hereby give it to you as a gift. So now... He's eliminated the possibility that perhaps he's double paying a loan, right? Now what he's doing is, if he owes the money, he's paid the money back. If he doesn't owe the money, he's actually giving a gift to the other person, all right? But it doesn't stop there. His friend, the lender, should say, if the money is mine, I hereby give it to you as a gift. <laughs> Thus, they both renounced their ownership of the money, and then they should divide it. Very amazing and brilliant. So actually a transaction, you think that maybe this is all kind of like a spiritual... No, there's actually a financial bottom line here. They're actually dividing the, the, the question amount. But now listen to this. A case like this actually happened, and the two friends bought Sfarim, holy books, with the money, and lent the books to people who needed them for their studies. Like, that's so holy. It's so holy. You know, and this is um, what I love about this. I, I love every part of that. But what I extra love about it is you really see um, Judaism at work here. Because, you know, a lot of people don't understand Judaism. They, 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 you see, if you look at, for instance, in um, the Eastern traditions, who is the holy man, the holiest person, is usually someone who is sitting on a mountain meditating or something like this. But essentially what they've done is they've divorced themselves from society, right? Or look at in um, Christianity, for instance. The priest doesn't have a wife and kids, right? So, so they've also sort of removed themselves from, you know, the, this, this very core sort of like level of interaction, you know? And... And, 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 and people say, you know, about Jews, they're like, you know, what's the deal with Jews and money? You know, like, what, you're all, like, businessmen, but you're supposed to be a light into the nation? Or, like, what's going on exactly? And this is what's going on. The whole point is that we're supposed to be in the nitty-gritty of, like, life's events, in every aspect of life's events, in the, sort of like the messy places like business, in the messy places like international affairs and things like that, and to be holy, to actually show that in these like complex social interactions, that there is a way to do it in a beautiful way. So, so that that's that's kind of why I like that. Okay. Now I'll tell you something else. Now we're sort of like moving along the buffet table here. This is a, a new thought, but this is also from uh, Yehuda Ha. Chassid, okay? Uh, and th this is, I think, especially interesting 
because he was one of our greatest mystics. Okay? So keep that in mind. He was a Rishon. That's, that's a big deal. Rashi was a Rishon. Okay? So to be a Rishon is, means that you were one of our, 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 our landmark foundational figures. Okay? So this is coming from a Rishon and a mystic. You ready? It's called Amulets Are Worthless. <laughs> okay? So listen to this. If a non-Jewish or Jewish scholar says to you, let me write an amulet for you that will make you popular or persuasive, or he says, I'll give you a charm that will make you rich if you wear it, needless to say, you may not wear it on Shabbos because carrying on Shabbos is forbidden. Now, that's, he's making a very interesting point over here because, uh, well, I'll tell you a couple of interesting halachas. You're allowed to wear jewelry on Shabbos, okay? So a woman can wear jewelry, and that's not considered caring, okay? Because that's a beautification, and she's wearing it and everything like that. That's cool, okay? In fact, there's a whole discussion. Can a man wear a sword? Um, you know, this is back in the day when people carried swords, right? Can a man carry a sword on Shabbos in, in a place that doesn't have an Eruv? And so the whole discussion revolves around whether a sword would be considered jewelry or whether it would be considered a utensil that he's carrying. So you'd have to look into the Gomorrah to, to, to hear more about that. Now, there's an interesting, what we call a nafkamina, which is a difference in, in a halachic point. Now, here, here the question, because this is sort of like, this is kind of like the fun part of halacha. What about a broken watch? Can you carry a broken watch? In other words, can you wear a broken watch in an area that doesn't have an Eruv? An Eruv, of course, is that protective fence that, that turns a um, public space into a private space and allows you to carry in an open area in the street, right? So, so can you, in a place without an Eruv, where you're not allowed to carry in public, can you, can you have a broken watch? So the answer is, for a woman, yes. For a man, no. Because for a woman, the watch is considered jewelry, right? It's like an accessory, whether it works or whether it doesn't work. For a man, it's really considered more of a utilitarian piece. And so, therefore, it's, it doesn't have the status of that. It's like something that you'd be wearing. And if it's broken, then, it, then it's no good. You, you, you have something, you have a, a parallel situation where, uh, with a man's tzitzis. So if a man um, tzitzis breaks so that, so that they're no longer kosher, okay, and you have to study the laws of tzitzis to understand what invalidates it, you have the loop in the corner that actually connects the, the, the tzitzis to the garment itself, right? That's one separate area. If, if that breaks, if a string tying it to the garment itself, the attachment between the string and the garment in the corner, if one of those strings breaks, the, the tzitzis is not kosher anymore, okay? If the lower strings, the hanging strings, if one of those breaks, the tzitzis is still kosher, okay? So, and then you, it gets more detailed how many, how many threads have to actually be intact and how long do they have to be in order to be called a thread. Okay, all that gets a little bit technical. But let's say you have a situation where one of the, the knots that actually ties it to the garment itself breaks, and you're wearing it in a place where there's no Eruv. Well, now that's not considered wearing it anymore. Now you're considered 
carrying it because the tzitzis is no longer considered a garment at that point. So, so, so in other words, what I'm trying to do is make a parallel between that and the broken watch. When the, when, the, when the watch is broken, a man at that point can't wear it, but a woman can because it's still considered jewelry. Okay. So, so now, getting back to, to this thing about amulets, what he's saying is that if you wear an amulet on Shabbos, we're, you can't even wear it on Shabbos. Because don't, don't tell me it's jewelry. <laughs> don't tell me it's this beautification. Okay. So... Um, so since an amulet is not in, 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 since it says the wearing of jewelry is permitted, but an amulet is not an ornament, uh, just a trinket. So that's, that's the, um, the editor explaining that. Um, but you should not even wear an amulet on weekdays, because by wearing it, you indicate that you believe in such senseless things. It says you must remain totally faithful to God, your Lord. If you want to be faithful to God, don't consult the practitioners of the occult who are mentioned in the preceding verse. A person who practices witchcraft or who uses incantations, who consults mediums and oracles, or who communicates with the dead. Put your faith in God and pray to him. So again, that's written by one of our greatest mystics, a Rishon in approximately 1200, 1150, right? So again, you know, we, we, have, we, we have to be careful um, every step along the way that, that we're connecting directly with God. And there will be opportunities and, and, and by the way, if you asked Yehuda HaChassid if he knows of any segulas, my guess is he probably knew a lot of segulas. Segulas are not quite amulets, but they're sort of customs and sort of like ways of sort of opening up the gates of heaven in terms of a mystical approach. Right, but the 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 dividing line is when one starts to put their trust in that as opposed to God, and it can be a really subtle step in a person's heart. So a person has to be really on guard. Now I'll tell you with that in mind my favorite segula story. Okay, so I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine, and he was saying it about one of the rabbis of Slonim, who wasn't Hasidic. You, we have a very famous branch of Hasidus the Slonimer um, Rebbe's. This person was in Slonim, but he was not from the Hasidic dynasty. But he was a very, very great rabbi. And because he lived in a Hasidic community, all of his kind of like um, uh, students were Hasidim. And they were always trying to get him to become a Rebbe. And he was always saying, no, I'm not a, I'm not a Rebbe, I don't want to be a Rebbe, right? So, but... One of the things that he did all the time, and they'd ask him for segulas all the time, and he'd say, look, no. But one of the things that he did all the time, and this is pretty amazing, I mean, you know, take a moment to appreciate what I'm going to tell you, because most likely you never heard of this. I certainly had never heard of this. And part of the greatness of this story is that you've never heard of it. <laughs> and, I'll tell, and, I, and, I, and I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that in a second. He would say before he had a meal, it was his practice to say before he had a meal, all 613 commandments. Wow. Right? Now, the reason why I love that, and I love not really knowing about that, <laughs> is that 
Can you imagine all the holy Jews who have done all these enormous, wild, incredible things that we don't even know about? You know, like what? So, so yesterday I was at Shalashudas, our, our, our third meal at the at the Happy Minion, and there was a, you know, a, an amazing person there, a, a black brother who's uh, converting to Judaism, and he said, you know, he heard a few people share some things about their 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 parents and their grandparents, and and he said, you know, something. He said, can I can I can I share something also? And he said, I want, to, I want you to know this. He said, he said, I am in awe of your ancestors. He said, you know, we, my people, you know, he said, have had a hard time. And he said, they, they you know, they, they didn't do nice things to us and they hanged us and things like this, but nothing compared to what your answers went, went through. That they were tortured just for their belief in God. And he, he just said, and you know, these, this is the, these are the people that you came from. And he said it again, I'm in awe of that. And it was, it was a very, very moving moment, you know. So, so when you think about stories like this, this rabbi would say, all 613 mitzvot before he'd have a meal. And you never heard of this guy. And there are tons of people like that. Okay, but this is a story about Sagula, so let me get back to the point. So, so, he said, so he said that people would ask him for Sagulas, again, which are these sort of like mystical ways of opening up the gates of heaven in different problematic areas in our life, or a marriage partner for children, or for, or for livelihood, or things like this, or it's probably the main areas where people seek Sagulas. So, so he said to them, I only know of one segula. He says, if you have a bowl of hot soup and you say all 613 mitzvahs before you eat it, it's a segula to turn it into a bowl of cold soup. (laughs) (laughs) So, So... that's that's the Segula story, you know. Um, now there's another thing in here, and I'm trying to I'm trying to find it to read it, uh, but I'm I'm having a little trouble finding the page that it's on. But again, it it really it really moved me. Um, let me just give it one more look to see if I can find it this time. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Okay, so so I'll see if I can uh, if I can relate it from from memory. Um, and this is another another beautiful thing. It says like this: if if there are two friends and one is in a time of need and he shares his burden, meaning to say his problem the information about it with his other friend. And, and his friend, who hears about his problem, treats it with great seriousness like it was his own problem and really prays for him, right? Now, by the way, let me just digress for a moment because I saw something from the B'nai Yisachar a while back that stayed with me, which is that one of the 
I don't know what word to use. Let's say one of the things that that that, that great sadikim do. Okay, so we're talking about a super high level right now of of of, of holiness. It's a very high level. Is that when someone comes to them with a problem, they take the other person's problem upon themselves like it was their own problem, right? Now you can imagine that's like that's that's a, that's a heavy thing to do, right? And to actually be able to, to even be able to do it, even if you wanted to do it, say, even to actually have the emotional greatness, let's say, to, to be able to do it, 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 it is amazing. But let's say they, they take on the other person's problem like it's their own problem, and they really cry out to God, right? Then God says, you know what? I didn't mean this problem for you. It was for the other person. And so they remove it from the person who's taken it on themselves, and in doing so, it gets removed from the other person as well. So this is like, this is like very, very advanced sort of prayer, prayer technology, you know, for want of a better phrase. Um, but anyway, let's just talk about on a more kind of like here and now level, okay? Because that, that's a very exalted level, okay? But, but what uh, Yehuda HaChassid is talking about is one person has a problem, shares it with another person. The other person, to the best of their ability, treats it like it's their problem and really prays for that person, okay? Now he says, the person who did the praying, right? Cut to later, later in his life, whatever it is. Now the person who prayed for the other person, now that person has a problem, okay? It says that the person who originally had the problem, right? Who that person had prayed for, right? That person owes it to the person who, who has the problem to pray for him, okay? And that if he doesn't pray for that person, that he's stealing, that it's a form in the spiritual realms of robbery if he doesn't pray for the person who had prayed for him. Now, that, that in itself is, is interesting, but he takes it one more step, which is really what, what drew me to this teaching. He says, now if the person who did the praying originally, right, and who now has the problem, right, now the other person is praying for him, right, if that person's prayer isn't answered, all right, so now it's sort of like, wow, I had a problem and my friend prayed for me, and now I'm praying for him, and I'm really praying for him hard. He says, if that person's prayer isn't answered, if he ever meets the same fate that he's praying for, for the other person to be saved from, if he ever meets that same fate, he will be saved from it. Or if his children meet that same fate, they'll be saved from it. So that, again, you know, in the sort of the mystical realms, in the spiritual realms, an amazing insight. And one of the things that it says, just so we're grasping the point here, I'm sure there are many points to be grasped, but just to zero in on one thing, is, is that the person who was doing the praying, if he didn't see the result, the positive result of his prayer, should know and understand fully that his prayer didn't go away, and his prayer wasn't just like batted aside or God just said no or whatever it is. 
But even if you think of it in, 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 in physics or whatever it is, that that person really emitted a, a, a quantifiable real package of energy. And then that remains. And it doesn't disappear. And that if a person meets the same fate, that, that part really is interesting to me. Not just sort of like, ah, if you're ever in trouble in general. He said the same fate. That there's, a, there's an address to that energy, so to speak. You know, It's like it's stored up there and there's like a route attached to it, which is this particular problem, whatever it is, that it will come down to that person or to their children if they're ever into that situation. Again, an amazing, an amazing insight in just terms of how the spiritual realms work and how, um, and how prayer works and things like that. But that, that should be a very reassuring thing because we pray all the time and, and probably the majority of the time we don't necessarily see you know, the results of our prayers. You know? On that subject, just, uh, just two, more, two more related ideas, not, not from Sefer Hasidim, but, but just um, about our prayers being answered or our prayers not being answered. One, and I've shared this idea with you before, but I believe it very strongly. Our prayers are being answered constantly. We're just not praying them. So let me, let me just tell you what I mean by that. You know, let's, let's talk about, I wake up this morning, right? Um, first of all, you know, let's say I go outside. I want to get into my car. My car's still there. My car could have gotten stolen. I didn't pray, please God, don't let someone steal my car tonight. But my prayer that my car shouldn't be stolen was answered. I just didn't pray it. You know, then I get behind the wheel and I start the ignition. My prayer was answered. I didn't pray, please God, let let my car battery not be dead this morning. And yet, it wasn't dead. And so my prayer that it shouldn't be dead was answered. I just didn't pray it. And if you extend that, you know, you go into, you know, the supermarket for items and the items are there. It's, I mean, how wild is that? That you want oranges and you can actually get an orange, you know? I mean, it's pretty, if you think about it, it's actually kind of mind-bending. Like, it's sort of like, I want cornflakes, but not just a regular, I want it made out of bran. And you know what I want with it? Raisins. Raisin bran? Yeah, I want raisin bran. You know, but not just raisin bran, with flaxseed. You know, that's what they sell now, raisin bran with flaxseed. It's like, oh, there it is. I mean, if you think about it, that's actually wild. That's wild. That's a... Yeah, right. It's a, if you go to other countries and, you, and you, you actually see that, how is this even possible that this is even in my bowl right now? You know what I mean? Um... So, so, so the, the, the level of specificity that goes on, so, so that's, that's under the category that our prayers are actually being answered all the time. Now let's go to the other side of it. And this is, I heard this from Reb Shlomo in the name of Reb Tzadok HaKoyin. This is in the prayer, this is in the category of not seeing our prayers answered, okay? Which is that, you know, one of the, one of the amazing moments in Torah is when Avraham Avinu davens that the city of Sodom, also known as Sodom and Gomorrah, shouldn't be destroyed. 
Now, if you just think about that, that, that in itself is, is, is wild, because Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, people still talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. It must have been a pretty outrageous place, right? I mean, to have had that reputation that still endures to this day, I mean, it was... It, there was a throbbing energy going on in that place, you know? And God just said, you know what? I'm just, I'm, I'm wiping it out. And our, the first Jew, Abraham Avinu, right? Who you would imagine, maybe he's going to take the standpoint of Noah, right? And this isn't to, to speak against Noah because that's, that's a whole other subject, why Noah did or didn't do what he, what he did. Remember, God says to Noah, the whole world has become incredibly corrupt. I'm going to wipe it out. And Noah goes, okay. God, if that's what you want, I'm a tzaddik, and he was a tzaddik. What's the definition of a tzaddik? Well, seemingly at that point in history anyway, according to the Zohar, as I learned it from Reb Shlomo, the idea that, that, that sometimes God shows you something for you to say no to, right? That hadn't been revealed yet. In other words, up until that point in history, the idea that um, if God wants it, I want it. That's the end, right? But it, it and and you that does make sense in, in terms of in terms of a simple definition of righteousness. God wants it. I want it. In fact, it says in Pirkei Avos, it says, "Make your will God's will." So all good, right? So so, but wait a second. Is it our approach if we see a poor man on the street? Oh, look what God wants: a man dying of starvation. Wonderful. And then you keep on walking. Because clearly God wants that man to be totally hungry and destitute. So thank you, God. Such a beautiful world. We, we don't say that. We say, wait a second. No, we got we to gotta do something. In fact, God commands us to do something. Right? So, so there's this area where if we see what we perceive to be um, injustice, it is our role to not just say, okay... Um, and to and stand up to it. So, so even if it means praying to God, and 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 a person has to be careful with their language because you don't want to be chutzpahdik, right? You don't you want to you don't want to express your um, your prayer in a way that's disrespectful to God. And 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 that's why if you look at the language of Abraham, so Abraham is looking at this place where they literally killed people and tortured them for giving charity. They killed people and tortured them for offering hospitality. Okay? So, so wouldn't you think that, that Avraham, the whole foundation of the Jewish people, would say, yeah, God, wipe them out! Wipe them out! So, so it's, it's amazing that Avraham, in, in a very beautiful way, and he's apologetic throughout for, for, for even, even suggesting that God should... You know, every step of the way he's... He's painfully respectful. But at the same time, he keeps on saying, God, please, save these people, you know? Or, or if they're innocents there, save them, or whatever it is. So, um, so, so, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So you would think, at the end of this, you know, the Avram comes back the next day, and it says there's basically this, this like, pillar of smoke like this burning wreck 
that's rising up from the city that Avram from a distance can see. Avram sees that, that, that God went ahead and destroyed it after Avram made a very great prayer on their behalf. So you might think that Avraham was, his prayer wasn't answered. And Avraham himself may have become depressed and felt that, wow, maybe, maybe, maybe I, I, I said it in a disrespectful way and God not only destroyed the city, but now maybe I'm on the outs with God or something like that. Like you, you can get inside his head and you could think all sorts of things that, that Abraham may have thought after that event. But what happened? Abraham spared Lot and his daughters. And from that line comes Moab, and from that line comes Rus, and from that line comes David Amelech, and from that line comes Mashiach. So in Abraham's prayer, as much as the direct aspect of the prayer wasn't answered, it brought Mashiach into the world. Or it kept Mashiach alive in the world. And, and by the way, I heard Reb Shlomo say something very interesting, which is that Mashiach is going to represent all of humanity. In other words, it's not, he's not just the lineage of the Jewish people. You have here Moab, whose birth happens between Lot and one of his daughters, right? So it's, it's coming into the world in a really, like, you know, very dark, strange way, right? And the whole sort of, like, family line of Mashiach on, on the in-law side, if you will, you know, it's, it's or actually on our side too, right? With, with seemingly with, with Yehuda and Tamar, right? Which is a whole, you know, amazing incident. But the, the point is this is that Mashiach is going to represent all of the people of the world. And so the bloodline has to represent all the nations of the world, and it has to represent everyone's spiritual level in the world too. Not just the tzaddikim, but the people who, the Yehudas who are actually visiting the Tamars, right? And, you know, not like it happened and it was a misunderstanding, but, but in reality, you know? So, so Mashiach represents everyone. Um... And this is just sort of like a, a side point, but I, I just kind of want to say it, which is that I think that we, we, you know, just like in, um, I, I mean, I'm making a very loose analogy right now, but just, just hear the thought. Just like when it comes to a segula, we can't put our faith in the segula, we have to put it in God. But we understand that, okay, the segula might be a way that God has informed me to reach out to him. Okay. So too, when it comes to Mashiach, we have to like keep the very big picture in mind. Mashiach, first and foremost, as I understand it, stands for the next stage of human development, of human reality, of, of the evolution of the world in terms of God saying, okay, you know what? There's been thousands of years of struggle and strife and war and hunger and hatred and all these things. But that, that was just a preliminary thing for what I really wanted to do. This is what I really want to do. It's an era of peace where everyone is getting along with each other and there's an open revelation of godliness and beauty and everything like that. That, that is the essence of it. It happens to be that there's going to be a Jew, a holy Jew called Mashiach, right? He should come right now. You know, and and he's going to usher in this, in this era. But 
and no shred of disrespect to Mashiach. Mashiach is not really the point. You know, it, it has to be, you know, according to the halachas that the Rambam brings down, who Mashiach is, okay? Alright? And he hasn't come yet. You know, so, so it's got to be that. But, that's kind of not the point. So in other words, when we're, when we're thinking about Mashiach and everything like that, what we really should be praying for, yes, you know, if you want to pray that the person should have strength and that he should be revealed and everything like that, all good. But, the real point is, we're talking about a world where everything is like really working the way it should. And, and, and by the way, in a way that it will. You know, because it's sort of like, if God can keep, I can't even, there aren't enough zeros to say the number of things that Hashem is simultaneously coordinating. There, isn't, there aren't enough zeros to, 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 to talk about the greatness of God and how He's running the world. Do you think someone who's doing all this can't make it that we get along? I mean, really? Really? Do you really think that? I mean, what could be easier for God than just sort of like going, okay, now I'm opening up everyone's hearts. You know? I mean, God tells tells us himself in the Torah that he's put a blockage on our heart. It's called an orla. We all have it. We have a blockage on our heart. It's separating our minds and our hearts. It's keeping our minds and our hearts. Who doesn't want to be a good person? Who does? Everyone wants to be a good person. Right? And then you go, okay, now be good. I, uh, it's hard. <laughs> and it is hard, by the way. You know? It is hard. You know, it's sort of like you can be in like this, like, very exalted sort of like, you know, chilled out, blissed out, like really but genuine state, and then someone annoying enters into your field of consciousness in an annoying way, and you snap at the person. It's like, how did that happen? I was just like in this like amazing place, and now I'm snapping? Where did that come from? You know, you know where it came from? It's hard! <laughs> it's hard! It's hard, it's, it's hard to balance these things. We all want to be good, but, but becoming good is, this is a lifelong process, and hopefully we get it more right than wrong, you know? You know, we have to be fairly patient with ourselves. You know, just, just, and because a lot of times, you see, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is, is so brilliant. And remember, the Yetzirah is an angel. It's not just a part of our troubled consciousness or upbringing or, or something like that. The, the, we also have that, by the way. But, but the Yetzahara is an angel, and it knows us better than we know ourselves. And it knows exactly how to manipulate us and touch our buttons and everything like that. So, so we have to understand that we're up against something greater than ourselves. And it says it in the Gemara, that the Yetzahara is stronger than you. And if it wasn't for your um, alliance with God, you wouldn't be able to defeat it. So the only way you're able to defeat your Yetzirah is by joining forces with God. That's the only way you can do it, by the way. So, yeah. So, so, so one of the things that the Yetzirah tells us is that, um, 
that beating ourselves up is the same as tshuva. Beating yourself up is not the same thing as tshuva. Tshuva means that you want to get it right with God. You want to kind of get it right with your family members, and you want to get it right with your your community and, 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 and the whole world. You, you, you just kind of want to get it right, you know? That's tshuva. And then you take steps toward doing that, and, and, and you try your best, right? Beating yourself up, the Yetzirah says, no, you got to really, you, you got to, the, the person that you were that, that made you do that, you've got to hate that person. So it kind of tricks you into hating yourself. And then when you hate yourself, you can't even tie your shoes. I mean, how are you going to actually do real work? You can't even tie your shoes if you hate yourself. So, so, so the Yitzhahara is so brilliant. It, it, you're trying to improve yourself, and it says, and it, but it doesn't speak these things out because these are all just emotional, intellectual flashes in your mind. Because otherwise, if you could actually read what was going on, you'd go, well, this is ridiculous, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? That's what you would say. But, but it happens so quickly in your mind that it says, oh, you really want to do better? First, you have to hate yourself. And you go, okay. And then it's like, wait, what, what happened? What happened? How did I get myself into this knotted up emotional state when I was just trying to be a good person? So, so tshuva is not the same thing. Tshuva just means you're coming from a positive place. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll wrap it up with, um, maybe we'll wrap it up with this point, which is um, my favorite Elul teaching. And, uh, and I heard it from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. And he says, what's the, what's the work of Elul, right? The month of Elul, of course, is the month that leads us into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's a, a time when, when, when God sort of opens up the gates, and they, we say the king is in the field, meaning to say that normally speaking the king is in the palace, but now God makes himself extra available by, by, by just sort of like, you know, being, being even more available to us. So what's the work of, what's the work of Elul? So the Yishvitzer Rebbe says that this is the time when a person should fix everything they're doing right. <laughs> so what does that mean? Normally speaking, you say, you fix what you're doing wrong. What does it mean that you're, you're, you fix it, what you're doing right? So, so the way Rip Shlomo said it was, that thing that you're already doing, are you doing it with all of your heart? Right? So that's the work of Elul. Start with the stuff that you're already doing. And then just before you do it, whatever it is, ask yourself, how can I do this next thing that I'm already doing? I'm already doing, no one has to twist my arm. I want to do it. How can I do this next thing in the most beautiful way? Right? So before, let's say, let's say we're making blessings. Before you make a blessing, maybe you just take a moment and you go, okay, let me just kind of not rattle it off. Let me just take one second to have kavana and just say it in a beautiful way. And you can apply this to everything that you're, that, that, that you're doing. And then one of the beautiful results of this, this is me talking at this point, is that when you sort of like, you know, a lot of times in politics they talk about, you know, energizing the base, right? Those are the sort of the people who are already on board. You want to get the people who are already on board, really on board. So that you can do the same thing with yourself. Once you energize your own base, right, because these are the things that you're already doing, that then gives you the strength to take on new things, right? 
So this way we can at least be the best versions of who we are right now, right? And then we can bring that forward in new and exciting ways. Okay, it should be a great sweet year. And also all of these words of Torah should just add more wings to Moshe bin Yamin, Ben Ephraim Yosef, his neshama should have an aliyah, and really should really just just uh, be continue to be a great light to all of us. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I don't, I don't know the name of the Rebbe. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's Yehuda HaChassid. Okay. So, and if anyone wants to uh, take uh, some, some tuna or, or, or uh, uh, egg salad, there's some crackers here. It's uh, from one of the nice restaurants in the, in the community. Everyone's uh, welcome to it, uh, courtesy of Tova. We also have uh, liquor here. Yeah. So what do you think this take might be on communing, to, communing with Hashem through nature, like talking to trees? Um, listening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's okay. You know, just as long as you're not considering trees gods or anything no, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, if you get. Tree, you're so beautiful. Thank you, tree. Thank you. You are the best tree. You did it. <laughs> Thank you, God, for making this tree. I, now I want to be a better person because you made this tree so good. That's not what I mean. Like yeah, that. okay. I mean, like, so for example, <laughs> for example say touching a tree and yeah. saying, you know, what. What wisdom can you tell me? What advice can you give me for Shabbos? And just listening, right. see what Hashem says. It's, it's, it's Hashem, but yeah, you're you're touching a tree, and mm-hmm. like, there's something else that's happening there as well. You know? But really, it's Hashem via nature. Well, I would say if it's a form of meditation with God, and you're really talking directly to God, and you're not imparting any power to the tree itself then I would think that it would be okay. I think that the danger happens once you consider the, um, the, the, the tree sort of like a, a, a personage or an angel of some sort. Then you're starting to incorporate other powers, it seems. Angel, as I understand, it's interface between the physical and the spiritual realm. Right. Right. So if a tree is serving right. as an interface, right. isn't it major? Well, we're not. We're not really supposed to like, like, like. We're really supposed to connect directly with God, and so, so kind of like, um, it's it, it can be a big spiritual trap, and the, the rabbis talk about this to a, to a great extent. If the if we make angels too large a part of our spiritual cosmos, in other words, they're there, but all they are are extensions of God's uh, non-physical arms, so to speak. In other words, as we go from the infinite to the finite, what happens is is that things become more and more physicalized, even in the heavenly realms things start to get um, shapes and contours and things like that. And those become angels, so to speak. So when the, the infinite one wants to bring down healing, as that healing energy comes down, it starts to assume a bit of a form. And so the contours of that form we'll call uh, the angel of healing, right? But if we're connecting to that angel of healing, why? You're, it's, just, uh, it's, just an, it's just a outpouring of godliness. Better to talk to the boss because the boss is standing right in front of you. What do you want to talk to the 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 secretary when when the boss is right in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you pray to Hashem in a respectful manner that's not disrespectful? Because I know you mentioned that. Right. 
do you not let your ego get, get the best of you? Right. So you don't want to be angry with God. I mean, well, you know, there are certain rabbis to tell you to be angry with God. I don't ascribe to that path. Um, but um, you, you have to pretend you're talking to a king. Pretend you're talking to a, a king. How would you talk to the president of the United States? You know what I mean? But who happens right? But who who happens to be your father though? Right? So so you have to keep the Avinu Malkenu kind of thing in mind, which is that he's your father, so you can actually pour out your heart to him and everything at the same time. But at the same time he's also he's also the king. So so you, you kind of balance it and go back and forth. But then you know you've got all these different paradigms in place because Rabbi Nachman says you have to talk to God like he's your best friend. So there's that aspect also. So sometimes it's sort of like you, you, you just have to, you know, you just have to, you, you have to discover what you feel is a respectful rhythm, but at the same time that is filled with intimacy and closeness. And it's, it's not always easy, especially when you're talking about things that you really need and that you're really been out of shape that you don't have. It becomes very, very hard to walk that balance. Yeah, but you have to try at least. And if you say words that you felt like, oh, I crossed a line, then you say, I'm sorry, God, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just I want it so much, and I know that you're. It, it all comes from you. You know what I mean? So you just be aware of the words you're saying as as you're saying them, but then also try to be as natural as possible. Well, and also yeah. The, yeah. with the enforced feels, the the chesedut book. You know, it says like. The with gratitude, that you praise right. God, like it actually right. gives like a right. few steps of, yeah. um, who's that book by? Not, it's translated by Rabbi Brody, but uh, Is it um, by Rib, uh, Arush. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So, it's like you start with gratitude. gratitude. You know, thank you for my eyes yeah. so I can say, yeah. see, yeah. thank you for my right. hands so I right. can do yeah. this. Yeah, and we learned that from Moshe Rabbeinu, by the way, in, in the beginning of Parshas V.S. Klenon, he begins with sort of just a recognition of God's greatness and everything like that. So that can help set the tone. But, 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 but you can't be, you, at the same time, you can't be stiff, though. It, it's hard to pray. It's really hard to pray. You know, it is. You know? and, and sometimes it's hard to get it right in just like one prayer, which is why his photodus is really great, because if you can set aside, you know, a half an hour or an hour or whatever it is, and you can actually just get into a conversation, and then, then once you discover that, then you can be in a good place. But it's kind of hard to get it right in just like a line or two sometimes. Okay. Um, is, is the hamsa or like the eye thing considered an amulet? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert. I don't know. Yeah. You know, a lot of it would just depend on how you feel about it, you know. You know, because I can see a, a, a hamsa as, as, as being a, a very pretty piece of jewelry. You know what I mean? So just kind of, if you, just if there's even a corner of your heart that's saying this is protecting me, then it's no good, you know. Or, you know, you know, you can look at a mezuzah is a is a mitzvah, you know. So a, a mezuzah is, is is. But listen, the Kutzkarebi says that a person can turn mitzvahs into a vodazara. So, so that meaning to say that, that people can look at a, a, a mezuzah and say, this mezuzah is protecting me. That people can even do that. So here's, here's the idea. You know, in sports, 
they talk about follow through, right? Like, um, not that I'm any great athlete, but this much I know. If you're if you're like swinging a baseball bat, you know, like the real power comes not just from like a a check swing where you swing it halfway, but the the whole swing like that. There's a lot of power in that motion that goes afterwards. And in golfing, I know, and I really know nothing about golfing, but in golfing, they also talk about the follow-through. And in tennis, too. So you have to have that, the follow-through you have to have with Kavana as well. Meaning to say that it's like, this mezuzah is so awesome, and it's a way that God puts protection into the world. And it is, by the way. And God, I know this comes from you. That's the follow-through part. In other words, your consciousness doesn't just rest on the mezuzah itself, but then you take it to the next step. You know, it's sort of like if you look at the Hamsa, for instance, you know, you're looking at the Hamsa and you're saying, God, you're saying, oh, wow, thank you, God, for, for putting protection in the world and that you are protecting me, right? So the you is going to God and not to the Hamsa, right? So, so that kind of follow through we should always do. And with each other, by the way, when we look at each other, we, we look at each other and we, we, we understand that, wow, you're a creation of God. And it's sort of like, wow, so that means that you're like, you're like a ray of godliness in the world, you know? You know, so, yeah. I read somewhere that um, we're always, so many of us, look to God and pray to God for the things that we need or want. But if we would just pause and thank God every time we pray, first thank for all our blessings, no matter what state we're in, no matter how terrible things might be, there are always things that we can thank God for right. first, right? and then go on to the things that we would still yeah. need help for. And I, I told you this once before, my twins always say to have an attitude of gratitude. Yeah, it's great. And it's so, it's so real. It's, yeah. and it change, honestly, it changes your life. When yeah. you have an attitude right. of gratitude about right. everything. That's yes. why people say right. It's a way of having an attitude of gratitude. Yeah, it's it's really true, and it's um, the easiest thing in life is just to become more and more um, focused on what we don't have, and it's sort of like there's a a, a almost a uh, just like with physical objects, gravity pulls everything down. There's a almost even a physicality on some level to our spirituality. And, 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 and gravity can just pull it down, just pull our souls down, pull our thoughts down and everything like that, and, and just focus us on our immediate need as opposed to all the things that we actually have. And a person actually has to work, and, and, and this is what you're saying with the, the attitude of gratitude, a person has to actually work to stay aware of what we, what we individually and collectively have. And you say, well, of course I have it. Of course I'm grateful for it. But you know something? It's, it's words. I promise you. For the most part, it's just words. You know, to be actively aware of what we have requires ongoing work. That's why we have yeah. so much Yeah, so many of the mitzvahs. So many of the mitzvahs. So many of the mitzvahs are there to actually remind us of, of, of the moment and what we have and everything like that. And it's sort of like, you know, people don't really understand that aspect, that, that aspect of the greatness of the mitzvahs because they feel like, you know, now I got to do this and now I got to do that and now I got to do this. But they're not really appreciative of the fact that, no, this is sensitizing me to this and this right. is sensitizing me to that and this is sensitizing me to this. 
Right. You know, we talk about, you know, right now it's a very hip, this whole movement of conscious, conscious living and, and, and all the rest. But that's been the core of Judaism, you know. Um, and that's what the rabbis were, were, were really doing, you know, with a lot of the rabbinic kind of like things were just keeping us aware of what God was trying to do with the mitzvot in general. And people don't really fully appreciate what, what the rabbis have done and what they've accomplished with with uh, with these things, yeah. Um, when you were talking about like if you pray like for someone and yeah, um, like it doesn't get to that person, but that at some time in your life if there's a need for that thing, that, you know, right? Bless you. So, well, remember the first step of that. You have to, they have to pray. For someone them. you're you're paying them back with your prayer. Right. Yeah. So the the problem now I'm having in my mind is if I do that now am I doing that with selfish motivation? You don't have to worry about that stuff. That's already the eight sahara. Honestly, that's the eight sahara. Okay. Because you know you just just to to do anything good in the year two thousand and fourteen in Los Angeles is a miracle. Yes. <laughs> really, honestly, it's a miracle. So you know exactly, and so you know to get. The Yetzirah again wants to just mess us up and go, but are you really, really doing that's, 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 that's just, just don't listen to it. Just say, you know what? I'm just trying to do something right. Just leave me alone. You know? Yeah, so long. Have a good week. Yeah. Yeah. Guilt, you see, there's, there's two. Guilt is um, a very interesting construct, okay? Guilt is supposed to be there to sort of like clue you in that something is wrong okay in other words it's almost like smoke with a fire like imagine if like a fire would burn without um, any sound or smell then whole things could become destroyed and no one would find out about it right so smoke is like this gift it's sort of like telling you hey there's a problem like run over there there's a fire you got to put it out so guilt is like smoke as it relates to a fire. So like if you feel guilt and you go, oh, you know what, I feel like this, oh, this nauseous, ugly, uh, terrible feeling. Why do I feel that way? Oh, because of that situation. You know what, I, I did that to that person and I don't feel good about it. Okay, at that point, guilt has finished its job. Okay? At that point, guilt has finished its job, and you should not continue to employ it. You know what I mean? It's no longer welcome in your office of business. It did its job. It did what it was paid to do. And now it's your job to take care of the problem. Okay? And so you have to be businesslike and professional about it. You write it down on a piece of paper. You say, okay, I have to call that person, and I have to apologize to them. Or I owe that money to that person and I haven't paid them yet. I have to pay that person back that money. Or whatever it is. And then at that point, the guilt has played its role. It's reminded you or made you aware of something that you've done wrong. And now it has no longer a role in your life anymore. And if you allow it to have a role in your life anymore, then you are aiding and abetting the Yetzirah. And this is getting back to what I was saying before. That a lot of people think that Hating yourself 
is tshuva. Hating yourself is not tshuva. Regret is tshuva. Regret is saying, I, I, I never, not only did, like the way Reb Shlomo says it is so brilliant. It's, he says that when a person does tshuva, they're saying, not only am I sorry that I did it, I never wanted that thing to begin with. I never wanted to do that thing to begin with. Forget about the fact that I did it and I'm sorry about it. I never wanted it to begin with. I mean, I never wanted to be that person. So, 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 okay. So that's my thing on guilt. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. Oh, just something yeah. that I learned yeah. from Sari Al-Khanak-Rigler. Um, when you're talking about the Itzahara, yeah. it's a disconnecting kind of energy. And she talks about connecting versus disconnecting. When you have that feeling inside of you, you're feeling disconnected. And you can fix that. You have to become conscious of that feeling. But when we're, like, Rosh Hashanah is all about connecting, about connecting everything, getting rid of all of the disconnections and making everything connect again. It's like resetting ourselves. But the connecting, disconnecting. If you're feeling disconnected, there's your Yitzhahara pulling your energy. Yeah. Cutting you. Cutting you off. Yeah. Yeah, so, so sometimes, you see, sometimes guilt is not the Yitzhahara, though. That's the no, only no, thing that I would exactly. add. Because it says that a person who has... Um, like busha, like this embarrassment, which we can also translate to a certain extent as guilt, that that's a sign that a person is actually Jewish. <laughs> so really, honestly, it says it in the Gemara. It says that, 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 that if a person doesn't have that quality of, of embarrassment or we're going to extend it, shame or guilt, that that's a sign that they're not Jewish, actually, in terms of their lineage. So, so, so that's a very precious quality. But if you allow it to have too much power, or if you allow it to step into a, a job position that it was never meant to assume, that's when it transmogrifies into the Eight Sahara. Right. So we just have to make so 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 in other words, we can feel that sense of disconnection initially, but that might be coming from a positive place, is what I'm adding. Yeah, but then when it overstays its welcome then that disconnecting energy is the eight Sahara. It's the okay. It's yeah. the dwelling. It's right. the Transmogrify yeah. means to become a monster. Yeah, yeah, it's a fancy word. 